Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And today, we have a pair of guests. Two women whom many listeners will recognize as hosts of the popular podcast Feminine Chaos. Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, who's based here in Toronto, and Kat Rosenfield, who comes to us from the New York City area. Full disclosure, I've been looking to get this pair on the Quillette podcast for a while, and what made me finally pick up the phone was their recent episode on demisexuals, in which the pair analyze why so many teenage girls and young women are inventing new, and somewhat dubious, variants of queer identity. We're going to learn about what demisexualism is, including its early roots in online gaming and Tumblr culture. We'll also discuss the larger question of why young, apparently straight females are co-opting the mantle of victimhood that once was reserved for actual LGBT individuals, a phenomenon that some gay men and women now refer to as alphabet tourism. Kat, Phoebe, thanks so much for joining us here at the Quillette Podcast. So I know, of course, what demisexuality is, but I just want to make sure you know what it is. It's when you take a sexuality and you split it in half. (laughs) So that's exactly what I thought it was. I thought 50% sexual. How did it get such a weird and confusing name? Okay, Kat, so that's you. I, yeah, I'm going to jump on this. Uh, being a something of a historian on the origins of demisexuality culturally, conceptually, and linguistically. So demisexuality, as it is in common use right now, means to describe a sexual orientation. Parentheses, it's not a sexual orientation, but it is meant to describe a sexual orientation. <laughs> Narrator. <laughs> um in which you do not experience sexual attraction without first forming an emotional bond. And this word has been around on the internet. It was born online, um, no surprise, since roughly 2004. The earliest instance that I could find of it was on a role-playing forum where it was being used to describe a fictional character. And then the next instance of it that I could find was Sorry, on. Just was was this fictional character like really clingy? I think she was promiscuous. But that's the opposite. That's confusing. Uh, you know, I think that she was promiscuous in in terms of falling in love uh, with people. But okay. we we have actually reached beyond the limits of my expertise. Okay. I right after I bragged about it. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the deal was, and you know. It's probably worth noting that whatever the usage was on this forum, it has since evolved in its contemporary usage to to mean something somewhat different. When you say like a game, was it Dungeons and Dragons? Because Dungeons and Dragons is full of demi-elves and demi-gorgons and demi-orcs and stuff. So I thought it was an outgrowth of that. Does a gorgon have to do with gorgonzola? No, it is not. Uh, it is not cheese related. <laughs> okay. Um So the next instance that I could find of it after this 2004 mention where I think it originated was on the AVEN network. This is uh, the Asexuality, Visibility and Education Network. It's an internet message board where somebody was who had previously identified as asexual wanted to use it to describe this other kind of sexuality where you're sort of asexual except um, 
unless you form an emotional bond with somebody. And then where the term became really widespread ultimately was on Tumblr, which is where a lot of these sort of internet-based identities are born, where the the whole point of it is about having kind of um, a flag or a series of flags to affix to your profile, you know, to your public face that kind of declares what kind of person you are. So that's where it really achieved a sort of a saturation. And now it's being used as like a marketing tool. Um, you know, people are identifying as demisexual publicly, uh, including, I believe, uh, Andrew Cuomo's daughter was the most high profile person to come out as demisexual. And it's being used to market um, dating apps and beer. Last time I checked. <laughs> right. Does the beer make you fully sexual? <laughs> Round you up? Yeah, it, it cures you. If you drink you. enough yeah. of it, maybe. Tumblr to me is like Reddit. It's like the internet of the internet. All of the neuroses of the internet are magnified on these sites. But is there no one on these sites in these demisexual forums who are like, we really need a better name because when I come out as demisexual at Thanksgiving, people are just confused. Oh, I suspect that this is part of the allure of this is to have an identity that the uninitiated would find confusing. Okay. I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Kat? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the the reaction and ideally the negative, confused reaction of people when you come out as demisexual is a huge part of the allure of calling yourself demisexual in the first place. Now, just to be clear, you can be demisexual and gay. You can be demisexual and straight. You can be demisexual and trans. Like, it's an overlay on every other sexual orientation, right? Yeah. So this is the funny thing about it is that people who identify really hard as demisexual want to describe it as a sexual orientation for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. But what's interesting about it is that it's a sexual orientation, supposedly, that describes the absence of desire, except under various specific circumstances. So what it really is, is like a kink, right. except not kinky. Yeah. But is it even that? I wonder because it almost implies that the non-demisexual is sort of attracted to everybody at all times, and that that's the default. But it isn't everybody's attraction only in specific circumstances? Of course. <laughs> so when I listened to your podcast, I then posted it on the Slack channel for Quillette, as, as I think both of you know, my boss is, is a woman named Claire Lehman. I think her reaction was something like, oh, so a demisexual is a woman. I found that very offensive, and I corrected her on her feminism. <laughs> that said, there's kind of a grain of truth to it, where is it almost tautological, saying I'm a demisexual woman? Yeah, so Louise Perry, the British writer Louise Perry, has written that it's basically young women's sexuality is demisexuality. I think, though, I would say that it's more what's expected, especially of young women sexually, in a more conservative context. So that's what's so strange about this. And this is something that Kat also has written about and that we talked about in our podcast, but it would seem to be a kind of conservative way of being for a woman. But instead, demisexuality classifies itself as part of the LGBTQIA+. So it's as it's if- It's conservative sexuality in progressive cosplay. Mm-hmm. It is, but it also isn't the only such example. So there are also polyamory or ethical non-monogamy versus polygamy or a cad having a lot of different girlfriends. You know, it's like a, a lot of times the same thing can get either the progressive label or the reactionary label and the, what's actually happening may not be all that different. 
I don't know if you saw, there was some guy, I think he worked at a video game company, and it was during Pride this year, 2022. He was polyam, and he was in a cubicle or a cuticle. Or what's it called when they're in, like, these cells? What do they call it? Like, they're kind oh, of... Okay. <laughs> I was thinking a cuticle. I was, I was thinking... like, that's a... Wow, it's a very small group. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but no, it, it's like their pod. They have a name for it. Polycule. Yeah, polycule. Polycule, yeah. It's like where they have sex inside their polycule. Well, I picture it as like this thing in their house, but I don't think it's like that. <laughs> anyway, so he had a photo of him with his, not a harem because he's progressive, but he was with multiple women and he's like, here's me with my polycule and we're all coming out because we're, I mean, it was basically a dude having sex with multiple women and he wanted to be an alphabet tourist and he just got roasted on Twitter. I wish I had seen that. It sounds extremely funny. In the article, Kat, that you wrote, you wrote there's this kind of this incel link that some people have made. What's that about? Well, I mean, that was my my link. I think that both incels and self-identified demisexuals are responding to a sense that the culture as it is now surrounding dating doesn't serve them and inflicts, you know, unsustainable, miserable pressure on them to be a certain way, to feel a certain way. Um, I think that, you know, incels are, are tormented by this vision of happy relationships. They can't get that. Uh, I think demisexuals are supposed to enjoy casual sexual relationships, but they don't. So in both cases, you're creating a tribe almost by necessity because you perceive some soul-sucking flaw in the depiction of what relationships are supposed to look like. That and also demisexuality as a concept is really founded, again, on like the absence of desire. And it was created by and popularized by people who are like 15 years old and not only have never had sex, but have never had a physically intimate relationship and can't conceive of wanting to have sex. Um, you know, for them, the, the way that they conceiving of sex is as something very unknown and very frightening that they're mainly concerned that they're going to be asked to do when they don't want to. And so constructing this identity is a way of kind of creating a, a safety zone where you don't have to worry about being pressured in that way, you know, you've sort of created a boundary. So how much of this is an outgrowth of the, I don't want to say just the medicalization of mental health, but also the whole typological approach where it isn't just like, well, I'm a nerd, it's, I'm on the spectrum. The idea that if you have a certain behavioral tick or a way of looking at the world, it's, it's not something I can even talk about or discuss because it's just part of my identity. Rather than starting with the description of who you are, you start with the typological classification I think a lot of it, um, and this is something that Kat and I talked about also on the podcast, people needing to find a label for themselves, but then kind of pigeonholing themselves in that label when they're accurately describing who they are at 15. For girls kind of scared of sex and for boys frustrated maybe that they're not getting sex, you know, to generalize. Then once it becomes a label, it seems like it's Hard. It's not necessarily that it's medical or mental health, but just that it's harder to kind of extract yourself once you've decided that that's who you are, once you've formed community around it. It's different from just sort of the old way of, I don't know, in my day when you were 15 years old, if you weren't ready for a relationship, you just had crushes on the gay boys in your class. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, an online therapy service that can help you get to your best self. 
So anyone who follows me on social media or listens to these podcasts knows that I have a lot of stuff on the go. Family, writing, podcasting, gaming, culture war shenanigans. And while I try to put on a good-humored face during most of these escapades, the truth is that no one, including me, is immune from life's anxieties and hang-ups. And I've learned that talking to a therapist can help with these issues. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, available 100% online. Plus, it's more affordable than other kinds of therapy. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist, and if things aren't clicking with one, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. There's no waiting rooms, no traffic to deal with, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash quillette. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash quillette. When I was in high school, the tribalization was on the basis of music. So you had these mods, I'm dating myself here, but like, you know, dressed in long skinny jeans, weird British invasion haircuts as heavy metal guys. I briefly flirted with goth. It gave you this world that was impenetrable to others. It's kind of what you want as a teenager. You want to say like, I'm this way, you don't get it. It's a goth thing. And it makes you feel you're part of a team. It's you against the world. To some extent, has some of these gender labels taken over the space that that music and other markers of identity once held? I think that that is probably true. I I noticed this when I was a teen advice columnist between 2009 and 2019. I want to say around 2012 to 2014, all of a sudden, the lens through which all of the kids were doing this sort of identity exploration that all teenagers do was not religion or music or, you know, or kind of personality stuff. It wasn't goth. It wasn't like drinking or doing drugs. It was gender and sexuality. And that was a, a profound and noticeable shift that has continued, I think, unabated since then. It's just kind of what they're doing now. And I think that probably in short order, um, especially because this type of sort of self-exploration as leisure activity has now become popular amongst adults, which means that it's lame. They're going to move on to something else. So I've listened to your podcast for a while. I get the sense that part of your point of view is you're young enough that you kind of remember what it is to be like for a teenager looking for an identity, but maybe old enough to know how idiotic the thoughts of a 15-year-old will seem later in life when you're an adult. Is this part of what your podcast has always been about? Not intentionally, but <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, it's, it's certainly a shared interest, I think, you know, the the way that stuff that we both kind of grew up with or like vibes that we grew up with have shifted uh, as we both approach, or at least I'm, I'm actually in now middle age. A while ago, you did this episode, there was a woman who tweeted about how she was having coffee in her backyard and she was talking for hours and hours with her husband. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was yes. at the end of October. She was uh, she was Twitter's main character for that week. It was just like I could listen to my husband talk for hours. <laughs> like we do and we do this every day. Yes. Yeah. She had the garden privilege, mm -hmm. the husband privilege, the time privilege. The yes. So can I ask you a question about that? Because when I was listening, I felt like, we all hate this person. <laughs> but does it have to be about privilege? Right. Can't you just kind of hate a person just because like, no. no? So that's been my theory for a while now. 
And yeah, what I wrote a book about, people feel that they have to criticize with this kind of righteous framework, that it's never that they find somebody or something annoying, it's always, and this is why for systemic reasons, we have to criticize it, because it's not like you can't call something tacky, it has to be that it's like bad for the environment, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like everything has to have some kind of greater purpose. And yeah, I found the garden lady annoying. I didn't get the sense that she was living a life of luxury though and it didn't make sense that it would be but that's the that's the default framework so you that's get so interesting that we need some kind of ennobling language as a kind of surrogate for like oh my god don't you want to slap this person? i have a theory about this that um this is part and parcel of the way that we now attach such a negative valence to bullying so if you want to go after this woman who has done nothing wrong she just <laughs> likes going into the garden and talking over coffee with her husband like and and she's happy about it and i mean what her what her tweet was guilty of was maybe being like a little too earnest i didn't find it irritating i guess i do understand why some people did um this was a a point of disagreement between me and phoebe i'm I'm actually irritated that you don't find it irritating (laughs) well you're you're not the boss of me (laughs) um I know. And you, Kat, you can, you Kat's can the wholesome me. American optimist. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you know, we, we've we really come down hard on the idea that bullying is bad. Bullying is an immoral act. So if you find this woman annoying and you want to go after her, you can't just say you're annoying and I'm going to insult you for being annoying because that makes you a bully. If you can attach this kind of bigger, noble purpose to it and say, I'm bullying you for social justice, you're actually punching up and hence you're not bullying. You're speaking truth to power. You also see this with like gossip journalism and the whole sort of reckoning to do with the aughts and Britney and all of this where the 1.0 version was, oh, look at Britney having a breakdown. But then there's the sort of 2.0 version that's equally lurid and scandalous, but it's critiquing it all from a feminist lens. So you still see the photographs of the young women in the miniskirts acting badly or whatever. But this time it's through a critical lens. Kat, I just want to return a little bit to demisexuality. I'm just, and I'm using demisexuality as kind of a stand-in for the dozens of other somewhat dubious identities. Do you ever hear from people who are the founding quartet LGBT, like actual LGB or T, who complain about the co-opting? Um, so I did have a conversation with uh, an older gay man who's a friend of my parents. He must be 70 or close to. We were talking specifically about these kind of queer identities amongst young people and also the use of the word queer in general. And he definitely found that troublesome. You know, he did not like that in adopting this word to describe themselves, people were sort of obscuring uh, a very recent, very brutal struggle for equality and for recognition. And, you know, it felt that that was being kind of... um, left in the background too soon. And what's, I think, frustrating to me about demisexuality specifically is that on the one hand, it's nice to imagine that the concept of queerness, of being a sexual minority orientation, has become so broad and so destigmatized that people are identifying like willingly into it, you know, that it's it's now seen as a good thing it's seen as synonymous as being interesting. Um, you know, it's nice to, to think that we've come that far. But on the other hand, people who adopt demisexuality as a label specifically do so 
out of a desire to paint themselves as members of a persecuted minority. And you see this in the response anytime somebody tries to speak critically or write critically about demisexuality as a concept. Um, one of the most amazing responses I got to the piece that I wrote was somebody saying, just say you hate queers. And I was like, well, where to begin on that front? I'm not going to do that because it's not true. But also like... The tweets that start just say are always the craziest ones. Just say the N-word. This is exhausting. One of my friends said... He didn't say this ironically. He said, if you include everything that is now part of the queer umbrella, we are literally, literally every single one of us is queer. If you don't like sex, you're queer. If you're demisexual, you're, if you like sex and relationships, you're queer. Furries are now, I don't know if you've heard this, but if you have a fursona, you're an enthusiast for dressing in fur. That makes you queer. I'm, I'm trying to think of a kind of lifestyle that is no longer queer. Phoebe's. So- <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry. But like, we talked about this a lot. And like, if everything's queer, nothing is queer. I forget if it was your podcast or in the article, but this thing called being trad, which is traditional, Mm -hmm. you're like a stereotype of 1950s version of what couples were supposed to look like. That itself, this hyper stereotypical depiction of straight monogamous relationship. is, Is that a kind of subculture now? It is, but it's not queer. Okay. Um, or it is. No, I the bimbo that... is, though. The bimbo is queers, the whole thing. Like, I think everything has its kind of queered version. Wait a sec. Is bimbo is bimbo an acronym, like a part of New York? No, no. Literally, like, no. busty, peroxide, blonde, bimbo type figure. That's, that's queer now? Yeah. That's, that's no, a... No, come on. I have links to send you. That sort of campy over-the-top Dolly Parton-type persona with, like, a little bit of irony. Yeah, I think that there have there definitely have been takes about the bimbo that that's subversive, perhaps queer. This idea that the bimbo isn't necessarily a cisgender woman and that there are trans bimbos and stuff like this. This is why I think this is also confusing, this world of extremely conservative or reactionary or sexist or however you want to put it approaches to life that label themselves as progressive just because they're done knowingly or they're done by good people or something and then you also have like the entire category of women who identify you know who who are like feminine women who are in heterosexual marriages but who identify as non-binary and some and like automatically their whole relationship becomes queer that's its own world yes so i mean the thing about demisexuality and and these other sort of Tumblr identities. Catherine D, the writer, she's known as default friend on Substack. She refers to them as affinity-based identities, which I really like because I think it describes what makes them unusual and what makes them so hard to pin down. There's no kind of corresponding like real life behavior or experience or action that you're taking to kind of associate yourself or express this identity. It's just about attaching yourself to it in a public way so that other people understand you to be a member of this group. And because it's so fantasy based and it's so, you know, both the origins of it and the sensibilities are all anchored in virtual space, which is to say that they're not anchored at all. It just becomes very difficult to understand how does this function once you take it offline? And I don't think it really does for the most part. So so it's it's something that exists in a kind of abstract online form, but when the computer's off and it's just, oh, now I'm making dinner for my family, there's nothing non-binary about your life. You're just a boring old straight person. Well, I think it has something to do with like the sort of 
bourgeois feminist, I don't know how to put it, like heterosexual self-hatred or the fear of being the boring, right, Kat, like you wrote in your piece, like the fear of being the boring cis straight lady. And are, I sorry, think Are men less vulnerable to this, in your opinion? Because most of us are quite boring. I don't think men have this whole thing, because a lot of it has to do with this idea that you're a bad feminist if you are straight, or even just if you have a male partner with whom you have any sort of traditional gender roles in your relationship. So I think there's a lot of sort of awkwardness around that. But is that. it like men are sufficiently superficial that like, so for instance, I, I felt I needed to shake up my identity six months ago. So I bought a Jeep. Like that'll keep me going <laughs> for another couple of years. I just change up my activities. Oh, no, it's different for women because of the idea that women's identities are a lot more relationship based. And that's, I don't think that that's necessarily inaccurate in terms of how society views things that, you know, people care if a woman's married or not in a way they don't really care if a man's married or not. That's kind of trite, but I don't think that's entirely inaccurate. I think the other thing too, is that women can identify into these categories by way of kind of preserving their place in the progressive culture, you know, you're trying to identify a way from being seen as an oppressor. Men don't really have that option. You guys are already a lost cause. <laughs> it's like you're you're too privileged, especially if you're a white guy, um, especially if you're a straight white guy. You know, it's, it's hopeless Especially if you have you. a Jeep. Yeah, honestly. And now a message from the Commercial Break Comedy Podcast, which has got to be a commercially successful operation since they're the ones with enough money to advertise on the Quillette podcast instead of vice versa. The commercial break features two longtime friends, Ryan and Chrissy, who get together each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to tease out the absurd elements of modern life, of which, as we all know, there are many. It's one of Apple's top three improv comedy podcasts and is available on all major podcast players and at youtube.com slash thecommercialbreak. Now, look, unlike at the Quillette podcast, you're not going to get a lot of black turtleneck stuff about, you know, the demise of liberalism. But you're going to get a lot more about important topics such as psychic readings gone awry and why would anyone want to date a ghost? And you're probably going to laugh a lot, which I like to think you do occasionally here at Quillette, but at the commercial break, that's the main point. The commercial break is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or you can visit tcbpodcast.com, that's tcbpodcast.com, or go to youtube.com slash thecommercialbreak. And now back to the Quillette podcast. There's some podcasts that are like, you know, well, I'm a conservative and my friend is a liberal and we have a podcast where we argue. And it's deliberately oppositional. You two have a different kind of podcast where you tend to have fairly similar outlook. You're, I think you're both Jewish women living in big cities. There's a lot of common experience there. And I feel like a lot of your podcast is thinking out loud and having the other person say, no, no, you're not crazy. That's true. Do people ever send you hate mail like you two are both white? You're both fairly privileged. To be honest, you sort of own that on your podcast. But I'm wondering how that's received. I don't maybe you don't have critics. I just assume people have critics because I have so many critics. We don't really get the kind of hypersensitive call out culture type people. I don't think that's we had really one was... who did we back when we were still on. Yeah. So I don't think you ever saw this um, back when we were still on Patreon. We had one person who stopped subscribing and left a, a nasty note in their exit interview where it says, like, why are you not subscribing anymore? And they 
they wrote that I was turning into Ben Shapiro, which was news to me. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that insofar as we have critics of that type, they tend to find Phoebe wonderful and me insufferable and what? that they listen no. to it for her. <laughs> You're both very hard to pigeonhole politically, the Ben Shapiro thing notwithstanding, you're both, I would say, dissident progressives and ironic conservatives, if that makes sense. I, I, maybe there's an episode where you self-identified politically, but if so, I didn't listen to it. Yeah, I did write a 4,000 word essay for the National Review about how I keep getting mistaken for a conservative. But I think that really has a lot to do with the fact that, um, again, you know, people from the progressive left tend to get mad at me. And then other people see this happening and say, well, they're mad at her. So she must be one of those folks who those people get mad at. I think the thing with Phoebe and I is that we come actually from extremely different backgrounds. And so although I think we tend to agree broadly, we approach all these topics from slightly different angles, which makes, at least for me, uh, you know, makes our conversations interesting and illuminating. Is there any sites that our listeners should know to go to aside from your podcast site? I have two things apart from Feminine Chaos to plug. Uh, one would be my, my Substack. Close reading the reruns. It's just my name, Phoebe Maltzbovi.substack.com. And I'm also an editor at the Canadian Jewish News. So if you have Canadian Jewish news for me, send it my way. So I am, in addition to a culture writer, I'm also a novelist. And my next book comes out January 10th. So it's a perfect just after Christmas read. It's called You Must Remember This. And it is available for pre-order now anywhere that you would order a book. Great. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 